Brave ones. The Lord be with you. We need to begin with prayer. You may have heard this past week that there's been two devastating earthquakes. And so we need to be in prayer for Japan and for Ecuador this morning. So would you join me and pray with me? And any thoughts that come to your mind as well, lift up uh, as we lift up uh, these tragedies. Let's pray. First, Lord, we greet you. We praise you as the God of love who has neighbored us and filled our hearts with love. We know that we've never spent a moment where you have not loved us, where you have not been present to us. The experience of your love for us has been profound, and we're grateful. Lord, we We come to you this morning and ask that your love now, your power, your help would be already on the way to the nations of Japan and Ecuador. We pray first for the families who have lost loved ones and ask for your your comfort and their grief, your your presence to show up in their life now and... uh, Help them, even through the rest of today. Help the survivors as they soar through what was their home, where they lived, and what was their life. We pray that you would um, heal the wounded and be at work in their body. And we pray that you'd be sending help from uh, countries of the world through governments that you've ordained and also through your church that we'd be first responders, (coughs) excuse me, and that through the church and the parachurch organizations that there'd be money and supplies and medical help and everything uh, that's needed to begin to rebuild. We pray your help for these nations. Please, Father. Pray for the gospel to be at work in the human hearts that are there the good news of Jesus. Thank you uh, for taking care of us, for a warm building, for our warm homes. We're reminded of your power on days like this. It says in Job 38 that uh, you have a storehouse of snow, and uh, you open it now and then. We've seen it. We can't imagine what go, the energy that goes into a a storm like this, and uh, we stand back and praise you, God, for your power and for snow, and uh, we know we'll be drinking it in July, so we're really grateful for that, too. Thank you. Praise you. Be with us now as we hear your word. May we actually hear it as from you, Jesus. May you speak to our hearts. Grant us that reverence and humility Without no one will see you or understand your truth. We pray that in that space between my mouth and your ears, that the Holy Spirit would take his word deeply into your heart to minister to your needs, your wants, your yearnings. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The late novelist David Foster Wallace uh, 
died several years ago, but uh, shortly before his death, he gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College in Great Britain. He began with this parable. There were two young fish just swimming along, and coming the other direction was an older fish. And as they passed, the older fish said to the two young fish, Morning, boys. How's the water? And then the two younger fish swam on. And eventually, one of the young fish said to the other, What the hell is water? It's a great fish story that reminds us that those things that are most essential are often difficult to see and talk about. And when we lose sight of the water, we're just swimming. I think that short-sightedness, when we lose sight of the water, is the reason we have gaps in our life that frustrate us. You know those gaps between what we know and what we do. For instance, we're in this neighboring series where we're talking about how God wants us to love our neighbors. I mean, we know, right, how important this is for God. Jesus said it, love your neighbor as yourself. We know that we've never looked into the eyes of someone who does not matter to God. We've never looked into the eyes of an someone who's not an ever-living, never-dying soul. We know this is big stuff, and yet I pull out my checkbook and I say, now is loving my neighbor a priority in my checkbook? I pull out my calendar. Do I see loving my neighbor as a priority in my calendar, in the passions of my heart? I, I'm on, there's this gap between what I know and what I do. So into this gap steps the church. And the church just wants you to know more. We want to give you 50 ways to love your neighbor. Grill out and back, Jack. Share garage toys, Roy. Dog on a leash, Keith. Love your neighbor free. I mean, we will help you by pouring more and more knowledge, tons of knowledge onto you. And the end result of that, maybe some Bible verses on it. And so that you will feel guilty and be totally shamed into loving your neighbor. And I'm asking the question, is it ultimately knowledge that motivates us to do what we know we should do? I'm suggesting, listen, knowledge is important. We all need knowledge. But knowledge alone is ultimately what will, knowledge alone will not help us love our neighbor as we want to love our neighbors. I'm suggesting it's 18 inches down from the head that ultimately moves us to love our neighbor. It's our hearts. I mean, here's the water we swim in. We were made by God for God, which means we are relational creatures. And what moves relational creatures is love. I'm suggesting that what will ultimately move you to love your neighbor is that your heart is full of love. I'm not the first one to say this. There was a guy named the Apostle John who put it this way. We love because he first loved us. Now, in context, he's talking about loving others. We love others. Why? Because he first loved us. We love 
because we're loved. And the more we understand that we're loved, the more we are overflowing with love towards others. It's the water that we swim in. So today, in the middle of this neighboring series, don't worry, next week I'll be back with 50 more ways for you to love your neighbor. But today is deep dive day. Today is a day that we dive deep into the ocean of God's love for us and get our hearts full so that we are motivated to go out with full hearts to love our neighbor. Are you with me? You ready? Dive, strap it on, here we go. By the way, did you know that the tallest mountain range on the planet is in the ocean? So let's climb in the water today. The most oceanographic verse <laughs> in the New Testament is John chapter 1, verse 14. It's deep. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only, full of grace and truth. What I want us to do as we dive in the ocean of God's love this morning is to really look at three words, which I think will fill up our hearts. The first word is the word. The word became flesh. The second word is flesh. The word became flesh. And then the third word, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word dwelt is a very interesting word, and we'll get to it. So let's swim, shall we? Word. John chose this word. It's the word logos. You may have heard of it. It comes into the English language as logic, and what he's saying is Jesus is the logic of God. And John is using the word to connect to his two cultures. John was bicultural. His uh, extended culture was the Greco-Roman, and he, he lived in the Greco-Roman culture. And in the Greek world, that word logos was a big word in pop culture, in their philosophy. It, it was used, for, by, for instance, by Heraclitus and the Stoics, who believed that the logos was fire, and everything that uh, we know about life comes from fire. In other words, the logos, as John used it to connect with the Greek culture, was the operating principle behind the world, the explanation of where we came from and why we're here. In our day, the logos, John, would mean something like a theory for life, like evolution. Evolution is a very popular theory in our culture that explains how we got here and, and where we're going. And uh, even though we have this theory of life, it's often not enough. There, there's a point where every big question reaches a point of jumping off into the unknown. I was intrigued reading the Atlantic Monthly a few months ago. They quoted Steven Weinberg, who is a Nobel laureate physicist, a brilliant man. But listen to what he says even about the modern theories of logic in our worldviews. <coughs> Excuse me. Physical science has historically progressed not only by finding precise explanations of natural phenomena, but also by discovering what sorts of things can be precisely explained. Now listen to this confession, and it's, it's bold. These may be fewer than we had thought. He goes on, scientific progress is like mountain climbing. The higher you climb, the more you know, but the wider the vistas of ignorance that extends on all sides. That's a profound illustration. 
And what he's saying, that even with the theory of evolution, we know so much about science today, whether you believe in evolution or creation. I mean, we know so much, but every worldview reaches a jumping-off point where you have to say, I don't know. In the end, it's Alex Trebek. It has to be in the form of a question. We don't know. So into this culture of we don't know, John says, listen, Greek culture, listen, Western culture, have you ever considered the logic of God? His name is Jesus. And then there's John's other culture. His native culture was Hebrew. He was a Jewish man. And for the Jews, the word logos had also intense meaning for them. It, it, it goes back to the creation. When God spoke the world into existence, in the Greek they used the word logos. And it means that for the Jews, they had a theistic worldview. God was at the center. But they had lost sight of who he was. Who is this God who spoke the universe into being? What's he like? What's his heart and so into that Jewish culture, John speaks, have you considered my logic? His name is Jesus. And Jesus is the one, as, we, as Donna read in verse 18 of John chapter 1, he puts God into words. What a cool phrase. If you want to know who God is, his heart and his character, look at Jesus. Jesus puts God into words. So here's John neighboring his cultures, he says to the Greeks, for all the cosmic questions, consider my logic, Jesus. And to the Jews, for all the theological questions, consider my logic, Jesus. Now, you might be sitting here this morning and say, Larry, I hear you. Yeah, I understand what you're saying, but I wish I could believe it. Prove it to me. Prove it to me that Jesus is God's logic that explains the world and explains God. Prove it. Well, I want to push back a little bit. I honor your question, and it's a question we all wrestle with, but I would push back gently by saying this. It is impossible for you, for me, to live a proof-driven life. You cannot ultimately live a life that's totally based on proof. You can't. Let me explain. First, there's this problem philosophically. You all, if you had philosophy in high school, college, you probably remember that, uh, how this works. I can stand here and tell you that I'm Batman. I'm uh, dreaming to be a minister, but I'm Batman. No. Who's, I'm Batman. Now, you would say, no, Larry, I know you. I've seen you. I know right where you're standing. You're, you're not Batman. No, I am Batman. You see, in order for you to say that I'm not Batman... You have to use your cognitive faculties, right? I would push back on you and say, who's to say your cognitive faculties are working properly? The only way that you can decide if your cognitive faculties are working properly is for you to use your own cognitive faculties. And when you use your cognitive faculties to prove anything, do you know what that's called? Begging the question. <laughs> Because you can't prove your cognitive faculties are working properly. But yet you're trying to use them to say that they are. That's a logical fallacy. You see, you can't actually prove anything. The word proof is misleading. None of us makes our mind up on proof. We make our mind up on evidence. 
You see, what we need to do is understand if there's enough evidence to believe that anything is true, especially when it comes to the big questions of life. The issue is always, does Christianity or any other worldview have the evidence that lines up with what I basically experience, what I basically observe in the outer world? You, you gather evidence, and then you make up your mind. And that's why, and here's the second reason I would push back on you, you can't live a proof-driven life. No one does. But secondly, it's interesting that when God comes and he wants to woo you into relationship, he doesn't give you the three basic proofs that Christianity is true, does he? What does he give you? He does not give you a watertight argument. He gives you a watertight person to look at. The logic of God is Jesus, and he wants you to look at Jesus and make up your mind about this thing we call Christianity, but you look at Jesus. So, does Jesus live a life? As you read about his life in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, does he live the kind of life that you might expect God to live? Does he back up the claims that he made? I mean, he made huge claims when he was with us. Did he back those up? by the way he lived. So you look at his life and you say, is that how God looks to me? And then secondly, you have to deal with this thing called resurrection. The resurrection of Jesus changed the world. It's like they changed everything about how life is lived. And you have to decide, did it really happen? Is there hope beyond the grave? The New Testament, which is the most documented book in all of history that we have in terms of manuscripts, the New Testament says that after the resurrection, 500 people saw Jesus. Most of those 500 people died for what they witnessed to be the truth. You have to ask yourself, did, were they dying for a legend, for a myth? Can you make sense of that? So you look at his life, you look at his resurrection, and lastly, you look at history. Look at history, gather the evidence, and then make up your mind. God gives us a watertight person. But about this person, a Harvard historian named Jaroslav Pelagin in the 20th century, not a Christian man, but he made this staggering comment. He said that if you look at all of history and you took a giant magnet and hovered it over all of history and it was pulling up scraps of history that had Jesus' name on it or Jesus' influence, there'd be very little left. Very little left in history. I was reminded of this a couple weeks ago. Jan and I were uh, visiting our oldest son in California. Have you ever driven through California and realized how many cities are named after angels or saints? It's staggering. Why? Because it was settled by Jesuit missionaries trying to reach indigenous people and the settlers. California has Jesus' fingerprints all over it, I think. Uh, <laughs> it's staggering to see the influence of Jesus on human history. You've got to make up your mind about that. So, the Word, the Word, the logic of God. He answers the cosmic questions, consider that. He answers the theological questions, consider that. Consider the evidence of who this man was. The Word became flesh. It's getting deep now. We're ready to dive. Get ready for the pressure. <laughs> it's, 
<laughs> the maker of Mary becomes the baby of Mary. The one whom the Bible says put the stars in their place. By the way, the latest estimate of stars in our galaxy alone, 10 billion trillion. That's 10 with 21 zeros. Jesus, if you consider the logic of God, he put those in place, this Jesus. And then he put skin on and became one of us. This, in the center of our galaxy, there's the star we call the sun, and the sun per minute puts six billion quadrillion calories of heat into the universe. And the one who placed that there moved into our neighborhood. And he engaged so deeply with us that he laughed with us. And he laughed so hard that his pastors thought he had a substance abuse issue. And then he would weep so hard with us that his followers thought he had a power issue. And then he got so thirsty when he was with us that he broke every social boundary one time to ask a Samaritan woman for a drink. He did not say to her, you know, the two H's and the O, that's me. He said to her, I care so deeply for your soul that I want you to take a drink of this water, this water, me, the living water. If you find me, you'll never thirst again. How's the water? Get this. This man became flesh when he was born. The most powerful man in the whole world was Caesar Augustus. And what you have is this baby ruling the world in the womb. The one who put the stars in place. Whoa. What you have here, the most powerful man in the Middle East was Quirinius, the governor of Syria. And here's Jesus, the one who juiced the sun, saying, I need a diaper change. And what you have here is the most powerful man in Israel, Herod the Great, who built things that still stand today. You have Jesus saying when Herod the Great is threatened by this baby and his parents say, we need to run to Egypt, you have this man, the word saying, yes, mama, yes, papa, and his obedience saved the world. What does this mean? that the word became flesh, it means two things for us. First, it means that God became vulnerable, became killable for us. He is for us. Just last month, the murderer in one of the most famous murders of all time, he died in jail last month. You may remember the murder of Kitty Genovese in 1964, Kew Gardens. It's the reason we have our 911 system today. It was a brutal murder. Kitty Genovese was on her way home there in New York City. She was being stalked. She knew it. She started to run, and the guy caught her and stabbed her. She screamed out. Lights went on. It was in the middle of the street. Apartments all around her. Lights went on, and the assailant fled the scene when the lights going on. One man yelled down and said, keep it quiet down there. But no one came down. No one. 
And so the assailant came back, stabbed her again and again, left her dying in the street, and no one came down. It was from this tragic murder that into the criminal psychology entered a phrase that we have. It's called the bystander effect. The presence of others hinders an individual from intervening in an emergency situation. No one came down. After the, during the trial, they interviewed 38 eyewitnesses who saw the murder. None of them came down. None of them called the police until 45 minutes later. Jesus Christ heard our cries, and he didn't just look down. He didn't just yell down. He came down. And he came down not just at the risk of his life. He came down at the cost of his life for us. You, me, we are loved. And God is for you. And God is with you. God has empathy towards us. He's not only come for us, he's come to be with us. God experiences everything that you and I experience. Apart from sin, he's experienced for us. So he knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be lonely. He knows what it's like to be thirsty. I mean, I remember once in my church in New England, I had an elder who was a physician, a doctor. And he was one of the best doctors I've ever had. His bedside manner was amazing. It was uh, patient, uh, very uh, explaining things in terms that I could understand, and he was very tender. I asked him once, Doug, how would you learn your bedside manner? And he said, well, it seems as a doctor, the primary way to learn bedside manner is to get on the table yourself. Have procedures performed on you. Be treated like a patient in order to learn how to treat your patients. My friends, that's what God has done to be with us. He's gotten on the table. Every table that you and I will ever lie upon. Are you here this morning and you've been betrayed? Jesus is on that table with you. Are you here this morning and you're broke? Jesus has been on that table. Are you here this morning and you're lonely? Jesus has been on that table. Are you here this morning feeling abandoned? Jesus had a big prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. Lord, if there's any other way we could do this besides the cross, and that big prayer was not answered. He's been on that table. The word, the logic of God became flesh so that he could be for us and with us. And as flesh, he dwelt among us. That word dwelt, 
He could have used another word there. He could have used the word live, reside, come alongside. He uses a word, dwelt, it's translated. It actually comes from the Hebrew word for tabernacle. And it literally reads, Jesus tabernacled among us. Get this, it's, it's going back, John's taking us back to one of the great moments in Israel's history when Moses and God were on the mountain and Moses says to God, God, show me your glory, let me see your face. And God says to Moses, Moses, if I show you my face, you're dead. It'll kill you. You can't as a sinful human being be in my presence in your condition or you'll be dead. The holiness of God and our condition is terrible. It will kill you. I won't do it. What I will do is we'll have this meeting place. We'll call it the tabernacle. And there, after the blood has been shed, the blood of the lamb, to cover your sins, to close that gap, and after it's there on the holy of holies, behind the veil, everything protected off from my holiness, there... I'll meet you in my way at appointed times for your life. I'll meet you there. Jesus, the logic became flesh in order that he could be our tabernacle, the place where we meet God. Jesus is our tabernacle, and we meet God there. What it means is that Jesus has covered the cost. He's closed the gap, that gap of his infinite holiness and our sinfulness. We could never on our terms do enough, be good enough to, to meet God where he is. And so God had to come down and close the gap to absorb the cost. You and I both know because we're made in God's image that forgiveness requires cost, right? If someone steals a $20 bill from you or if they hurt your child, either way, you are rankled. You are angry. You know what it's like to have your being violated Someone has to absorb the cost if that relationship's going to go on. And God came down, and he absorbed the cross, and he met us there. He is our tabernacle where we meet God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us so that we are fish swimming in an ocean of love every moment of our existence. And the more we see the water... The more our hearts are full of his love, the more we are driven to our neighbors. What I'm suggesting is simply this. The starting point for you getting to your neighbors is for you to think about how much God loves you. To be absorbed, captured. That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So two thoughts as we close to bring this into our heart. One, some of us here this morning need to stop saying Merry Christmas and having it be all holly jolly and make up your mind. Is Jesus who he said he was or not? Is this baby the one who claimed to forgive my sins and judge me at the end of my life? Is he who he says he is or not? Make up your mind. Jesus is not after fans. He's after followers. Choose. Who is this baby? Christmas forces a decision on you.
jump in. Start swimming. Secondly, once you jump in and you're in the water, the Jesus water, and you're swimming the ocean of love, that love begins to come out of your heart in every place you look. Be ready. Be warned. It comes out in the daily rituals of your life. I was reading a, reading a great book recommended to you about this idea of love that motivates us by James K. Smith. You are what you love. Let me just read one story he shares about how they're learning to love their neighbors as they realize they're swimming in God's ocean of love and it comes out everywhere in their life. Smith writes, Don't underestimate the significance of a dinner table education. This hit home for me again recently. Around the Smith family table one night, our conversation veered toward a heartbreaking story of a 12-year-old boy who had marched to a playground and killed a nine-year-old neighbor with a knife. He then knocked on a nearby door, asked to call the police, confessed his crime, and told the officer he wanted to die. As my wife, Deanna, recounted this story at, at dinner, our youngest son, 16 years old, his blood began to boil with anger, an adolescent expression of sadness for the boy who was killed. What could possibly drive a young boy to do this? But Deanna wasn't finished with the story, and how she told the rest was a lesson in moral discernment and compassion. How indeed could a boy do that to another boy? As we already suspected, the horrors of the young man's abuse and neglect emerged. Sadly, it almost became understandable why this boy wanted to die. Though not an excuse, it was clear that this murderer was a victim too. Tears began to well up in Deanna's eyes as she tried to get our son to imagine the unimaginable. She filled in the picture. The filth of the boy's so-called home. Its table's covered with drug paraphernalia, but its cupboard's bare. The boy's body was riddled with bruises and scars from abuse. He arrived at school hungry almost every morning. Deanna patiently, yet tearfully, tried to get Jack to realize that almost everything he took for granted in his own life was absent from this young man's world. Jack sat silently as he absorbed all this. Not even a 16-year-old boy could suppress his tears by this point. Also that night, one of our older boys just happened to be home from college, and he was there for dinner. He was quiet throughout all of this, seemingly aloof. He gathered his plate without a word and went into the kitchen. But then in the mirror on the dining room buffet, I could see him behind me, hunched over the counter, sobbing quietly, learning to lament. Even mourning takes practice. Resisting the distractions that insulate us from facing up to the tragedy of the world in which we find ourselves, we need to teach our children to mourn for neighbors who bear the brunt of injustice, even though we grieve as those with hope. Sometimes, in this fallen world, the best thing we can do is teach our children to be sad. Waterstone.
How's the water? The word became flesh and dwelt among us to fill our hearts with love. And that love is what takes us to our neighbors. As we sing our closing song, all you need to do to get this love into your heart is tell Jesus, I'm yours. You come as you are. You come, it doesn't matter where you're coming from. It doesn't. It doesn't matter who you are or what you've done. Come as you are. Say to Jesus, I'm yours. And your love begins to be filled up with an ocean that we call the love of God. So please stand. Ask God to fill up our hearts with his love as we sing.